0: So, Ukraine is in the news a lot today because of the war with Russia, but I don't know if you guys remember back on April 26, 1986, in Ukraine, something big happened. It was the Chernobyl disaster. It was the explosion of the nuclear power plant, and it was the worst accident pretty much in modern history. And so, radioactive matter was released into the atmosphere pretty much all over Eastern Europe. And at that time, it was reported that there was probably up to 60,000 cancer deaths because of that, and that there were 985,000 premature cancer deaths between 1986 and 2004 because of this radioactive fallout. that's, That's like radioactive chemicals that have like permeated an area and and created, created major problems. But think about spiritual fallout, spiritual radioactive fallout. That's what happened last week when Adam and Eve sinned, if you guys remember. Adam and Eve sinned. They brought sin into the world. They brought guilt, shame, fear. They hid themselves. And instead of owning up to their sins, what did we end up with last week? They blamed one another. What did Adam say? Adam said, God, I'm blaming you because you gave me this woman, and she made me do it. And what did the woman say? The devil made me do it. So there's a lot of blame game going on. So where we ended up last week is Adam and Eve are fractured, they're hiding, they're guilty, and it was their own personal sin. But for tonight, what I want us to do, is, that, is there a ringing noise? Or is, okay. Um... Do you want to go back and get Sherry again to see if she can help out with the sound? Um, yeah, because if I can hear, it, you guys can probably hear it. This microphone, just to, to let you guys know, this is a, our good microphone is not working, and so we had to send it back to the manufacturer to get repaired, and that's what it's being done right now. So this is a backup that's not very good, but it's better than nothing, and so that's why we're trying to struggle with it. But So what I want to do tonight is I want us to see how Adam and Eve sin impacted us today like what was the result of the fall today so here is and, we're, and you can open your bibles to genesis chapter 3 that's where we're going to be tonight but here's the main point thanks sherry there's just a little bit of a ringing kind of like there was sunday morning and i don't know exactly i'm glad you're i'm glad you're here tonight so um, and it could be that i'm turned up in the house a little bit louder than so here's the, here's the main thing for tonight. God promises sovereign grace amid painful judgment. That's a little bit better. I'm not sure what you did there, but that's, that's, is that a little bit better? Okay. Okay, so God promises sovereign grace amid painful judgment. So we're not going to necessarily go verse by verse tonight, but we're going to kind of look at this in three big categories, three big movements three big scenes, okay? So here's the first issue that I want us to explore tonight, and that is the sentence of judgment. The sentence of judgment. And so God pronounces a judgment on the serpent, on the woman, and then on the man. Because all three were instrumental in this fall. So let's read together starting in chapter 3, verse 14. Is everybody there? The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and eat dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I've commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So let's first look at the serpent. So the Lord pronounces a sentence on the serpent first. Pronounces a curse. Now, notice what he says there. He says, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock. Cursed. He was the unclean serpent who slithered into the garden, and now he's going to eat dust all the rest of his days. Now, this doesn't mean that he's metaphorically going to eat dust the rest of his life, but it's a metaphorical way of showing that he's going to be humiliated. What started out as this temptation by Satan is going to end in humiliation. Now, we're going to come back to verse 15 in a moment, so just hold that thought. We're going to come back to verse 15. Okay, so to the serpent, you're cursed. You're going to slither in humiliation the rest of your life. Okay, to the woman, God ordains two sentences of judgment. Okay, so ladies here, you can thank Eve for number one. Number one, she would experience increased pains in childbearing. Notice what it says there in verse 16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. So I've had two children. I've seen my wife give birth to both children. <coughs> Aidan came quickly, and it was a quick delivery. <coughs> Excuse me. And it was not as painful, I don't think. It's Zachary. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm battling a little bit of a scratchy <coughs> Scratchy throat um, With Zachary, we had to Don had to do an epidural Which she didn't do with Aiden and the, and the labor was a lot longer But those of you women that have given birth It is a painful experience And so There's an issue here of pain and childbearing Because of Eve's sin Okay Second sentence of judgment. And this is what I need to explain because um, the word desire there, I need to explain what the word desire there is. Secondly, there would be a power struggle in her relationship with her husband. Notice what it says there at the end of verse 16. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now, sometimes when you first read that, some people take that to mean, oh, she's going to desire her husband in the sense that she's going to have a sexual desire for him. That's not what that word means. Before the fall, she had a desire for her husband because the two of them were naked and not ashamed. That word desire only shows up one other time in Genesis, Okay, that, that, that word desire shows up one other time in Genesis, and let me show you where it shows up in the very next chapter. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, and this is when Cain is getting upset, and right before he goes and kills his brother. In Genesis 4, 7, if you do not, if you do, not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it you need to control this temptation because sin is wanting to control you. It's wanting to have power over you. So what this means is that because of sin, there's going to be, I hate to use the word the battle of the sexes, but there's going to be this whole idea where a woman's gonna wanna have authority over her husband and to rule over him and to make spiritual decisions without him. Wives are going to want to dominate their husbands. And then what's going to happen with the men? Your husband will rule over you. The word "rules" is a strong word for being an authoritarian dictator. Just as Cain needed to forcefully deal with the sin that was crouching at his door, a husband would forcefully and violently rule over his wife. No, so... This is not an absolute statement of how husbands and wives re- relate, but there is, because of sin entering in the world, there's going to be conflict in marriage. Men are going to want to be ruling over their wives, and women are going to want to be ruling over their husbands. And so God's design before the fall was that Adam would have spiritual leadership, leadership, servant, spiritual Godly leadership Not Dominance or despotic Rule that would crush the wife It was only After the fall that husbands would Rule over their wives and wives Would try to dominate their husbands I've seen two extremes in men And how they relate to wives Now I say extremes One extreme is where A husband is abusive of his wife Physically verbally he rules over Her abusively that's one extreme, that's, that's ungodly, that's sinful. The other extreme I've seen is where a husband is passive and he just sits back and does not take his spiritual responsibility and pretty much lets his wife make all the spiritual decisions while he just passively sits back and does nothing. That's just as sinful. So what God's design is for marriage is that the husband would cheerfully, sacrificially, spiritually, godly, lead the wife gently, and the wife would voluntarily, cheerfully, joyfully follow her husband's leadership so that they're both going in the same direction. Kind of like a dance. I'm not a dancer, but you know when you dance with a dance partner, what happens if you're not going in the same direction? You step on toes and you fall over, and so a marriage is like a coordinated dance where the husband and wife are going in the same direction, but who's the leader? The husband. He gently and joyfully leads his wife. Okay? So that's the issue for the woman. And it affects all women with childbearing and then this whole issue of conflict and marriages that need to be worked out. All right, to the man. Notice that to the man, he says there in verse 17, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree. What should have the man done when he first saw the serpent talking to his wife? He should have driven out the unclean serpent. He should have protected her. I said this last week. When that unclean serpent came and tried to attack Eve, Adam should have been a buffer and drove him out of the garden and protected his wife. But instead, he let the serpent talk to her, and Adam was there the whole time it was happening. And he listened to the voice of his wife and he passively let her be tempted and he took the fruit. And so there would be two results of Adam's sin. First, just like there would be two results with, with Eve's sin, first there would be painful, sweaty work with an uncooperative land that yields weeds, okay? I hate weeds. And every time I go out there and spray Roundup or pull weeds like Doty was doing this week and some of the ladies that pull weeds. I, I sit there and under my breath I'm like, Adam, Adam. <laughs> I, I blame it all on Adam that we have weeds. Notice what it says there. Verse 17. Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Notice how he reiterates the command there. I gave you a direct command Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. So this, the whole created order is going to be corrupted with thorns and thistles. And, and think about this, the land is not only going to fight against us in producing crops, but this is why we have earthquakes and natural disasters and hurricanes and tsunamis and all types of natural disasters, why we have cancer, why we have famine, why we have disease. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 8. Verses 20-23, Paul says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain freedom of the glory of the children of God. So right now, creation is in bondage of corruption because of what Adam did. But one day, We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. So the earth is going to fight against us. It's going to produce thorns and thistles. We're going to have to work the ground. We're going to have to work hard. We're going to have to put forth sweat and then the second thing that is, that's a result of Adam is though, there, there's one thing that's 100% true. So five out of 10 statistics will tell you that this is one statistic that's 10 out of 10, okay? Some of you are like, I don't follow the math. What's the number one statistic that's 100% true? Every single person is going to what? Win the lottery, right? No, no, every single person is going to die. So this is the second thing that, Adam is cursed with he would experience physical death just like God had promised him for eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil notice what it says there at the end of verse 19 till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return you're going to die and you're going to go back to the ground you're going to be put into a grave Psalm 103, 14 through 16. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. For man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field and wind passes over it and it's gone. And its place knows it no more. Adam is going to experience physical death. Ecclesiastes 3.20 All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Everybody that dies is going to go back to the ground. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the culmination of the sentence of judgment is death. Now I would just say this, it doesn't say it right here, it talks about physical death, but when we get to Romans chapter 5, we're going to talk about spiritual death. It not only brought physical death, but it also brought spiritual death. Okay, so that's the sentence of judgment. God places a judgment on the serpent, a judgment on the woman, a judgment on the man. Now, let's look at the second thing that we see in this passage of Scripture. We call it the exile of banishment. They're banished. So let's keep reading. Verse 20. The man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living and the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. But the Lord God said, Behold, man has become like one of us in knowing good of evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him Out from the garden of Eden to work the ground for which he was taken, he drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. You see the language there? In verse 23, he sent Adam out. In verse 24, it's a stronger word, he drove him out. The language here is of banishment. It's actually, other places in the Old Testament is used for divorce. It's like, it's like God's basically saying, Adam and Eve, there's a divorce and you're gone. You're, you're being kicked out of the, of the garden. So, what I want to do now, that's the narrative that Genesis teaches us. You can only get so much from Genesis here but you have to go to the New Testament especially the writings of Paul to give us more theological understanding of the implications of what happened with Adam and his sin so what we're going to do for a long time tonight is we're going to turn to Romans so I need you to turn to Romans chapter 5 and in Romans chapter 5 Paul is going to introduce two groups of people And ultimately, these are the only two people in the world. It's just the way Paul describes them. These two people are, you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. And so let me just put it this way. Every single person is born in Adam. You're not born automatically in Christ. You're automatically born in Adam. You have to be in Christ through faith. So, it's basically saying unbelievers and believers. But Paul is going all the way back to what Adam did. And so, I want us to look at verse 12. Because this is how Paul starts this argument about comparing and contrasting Adam to Jesus. And sometimes, by the way, sometimes the language that's used is the first Adam and the second Adam. Adam, literal Adam is the first Adam, Jesus is the second Adam in the sense that he is the Son of God in the flesh who did in, did what Adam could never do and undid what Adam did, okay? is fully God and fully man. So let's look at verse 12. Everybody there, Romans chapter 5, verse 12? Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, And death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Okay, in that one verse, you've got three truths. And the third truth is very, very controversial. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it tonight, but I'm going to introduce to you some concepts because we may come back to it. So there are three important truths just in that one verse. Number one, sin came into the world through Adam, bringing with it the penalty of death. Just as sin came into the world. So how did sin enter the world? Now, obviously, the big question is, well, didn't sin enter the world through the serpent tempting Eve? Yes, but we're talking about the consequences to us who are born today. Sin entered into the world through Adam's one trespass. And what happened as a result of that? The penalty of death. Now, who died because of that sin? Well, what we just looked at, Adam eventually died, but there's a second truth, death spread to all people, so all people will both die physically and should be spiritually, I don't know why there's not an and, (laughs) they'll both, they'll both, they'll die both physically and is there another part of that too? Yes, Sean, it was, it wasn't, I didn't add it, spiritually. Those two are pretty easy to understand. Sin entered the world, death spread. But the third thing has caused some confusion. Read it. Because all sinned. Now wait a minute, all sinned? Let me ask you some grammar here tonight. Does all refer to one person or, two, or more than one person? Just, to, just a simple question. All refers to more than one, right? Okay, but who sinned in the garden? Adam. Okay, now, why is it in past tense? It doesn't say all, all people sin, which is true. It says all sinned. Now, I'm not going to go into all the different views because this has been um, talked about throughout history, but what I'm going to Introduced to you tonight are two theological concepts that you need to understand that we talk about in theology that are a result of Adam's sin. And the first one is called original sin. Contrary to what you may think, original sin is not the first sin that Adam and Eve sinned. Original sin means this. We inherit a sinful nature from Adam. Which makes us corrupt, and that nature leads us to eventually commit actual sins. Okay? This is not in your notes, but there's a heresy that came about in about the 400s with a British monk. His name was Pelagius, thus, Pelagianism. He argued, basically, and it was deemed heretical that human beings are born neutral, you haven't inherited any sin from Adam, you're born a blank slate, and you choose to sin based upon your environment. So you can come out, you come out, you come out a blank slate. You can choose to be good, you can choose to be bad, but ultimately, nothing that Adam did impacts you. What we're going to find out from this passage of scripture is that original sin means that every single one of us, with the exception of Jesus, obviously, are born inheriting Adam's sin, and that renders us sinful with a nature that's sinful, not just actions, but nature, so Psalm 51, 5, this is a hard verse that some people mistranslate, this is David, he says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me, now, I was teaching a Bible study last night, and we talked about the same exact passage, and I can understand the interpretation somebody said well does that mean that David's mom had premarital sex and that he was conceived out of wedlock that's not what that means what it means is from the very moment of conception he was a sinner so let me just say it this way the moment that baby pops out of the chute that baby is a sinner now that's another discussion talking about the age of accountability and the whole issue of, is that baby held accountable? But the point is, is that every single person is born with original sin inherited from Adam. Now, at this point, almost all evangelicals are going to agree to some extent that we're born with a sinful nature, unless you're a Pelagian and you believe that we're blank slates. What I'm gonna share next is what not, not all Christians hold to the next thing I'm going to say. I hold to it. You don't necessarily have to hold to it, but you're entitled to be wrong. No, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. No, this is something that is controversial that is not a make or break. It's in our doctrinal statement. It's not a make or break. The first one, I think, is original sin, but the next one takes it a little bit further and says, yes, we're sinful, but there's also original guilt. Not only did we inherit a sinful nature from Adam, but his guilt in the garden, and here's the key word, was imputed or credited or reckoned to us so that we are born guilty of his sin. Now you may say, that's not fair. Why am I held guilty for Adam's sin when I wasn't there and sinned? Why am I held guilty for somebody else's sin when I wasn't there that committed the sin? Here's another concept I want you to understand tonight. It's called federal headship, okay? Federal headship. Adam was our federal head. And what he did in the garden as our representative not only gave us a sinful nature, but also made us born guilty of his sin even though we were not yet born or had committed any sins of our own. So let me illustrate this. We have two senators from Colorado, whether you like them or not, okay? When a senator goes to Washington, who are they representing? All Coloradans. And the decisions that a senator makes or a way a senator votes in the Senate, whether you like it or not, he's representing you and voting for you. And you may say, well, I don't like that. Oh, I don't like the way he voted. And the way our system set up is that that representative is representing a whole group. And so the way God set it up is Adam is the representative that represents the whole human race. So what Adam did in the garden, he was the first one that did it. And not only is he personally held accountable for his sin, but we're held accountable for his sin because he represented us and we are thus born with his guilt. Now let me ask you a question. If you had been Adam, would you have done the same thing? probably so original sin and original guilt original guilt is not held by it's not as widely held by a majority of evangelicals the way original sin is I hold to both of them because I think this passage of Scripture teaches them, but you don't necessarily have to hold to both of them. I know it's a hard concept to think about you being held accountable for somebody else's sin, even though you weren't there to commit it. But all throughout the Bible, there's this idea of representation or solidarity to where one person represents all of us. Now, this, makes, this is going to make sense here in just a moment because let me ask you a question the opposite way. Did Jesus do things for us that we weren't there for, that we get the benefit of as our representative? So if you're going to say, I don't like Adam representing me, then you have to look and say, well, okay, I don't know if I like Jesus representing me, because it's the same thing. Adam represented us in one way negatively. Jesus, on the other hand, represented us positively, and what he did gets credited to us. What Adam did gets credited to us. And that's Paul's argument. He's saying there's some things that Adam did that are credited to us. There's something that Jesus did that are credited to us. All of us are born in Adam. And so he also echoes this whole thing in 1 Corinthians 15, 21 through 22. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So there's this two humanities, those in Adam, those in Christ. Now, let's just take you to a passage of Scripture that teaches this whole idea of total depravity, original sin, original guilt, all together in one passage of Scripture. And this is um, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. You were dead in the trespasses in which you once walked... Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, I I want you to see five descriptions that Paul gives of a person without Jesus. You guys help me out here. What's the first? Look at your sheet. You were what? Dead. So number one, we, before Christ, you were spiritually dead in your sins. Okay, number two, you followed the course of this world. So you're following the ways of the world. Number three, you're following the prince of the power of the air. That's talking about Satan. You're in bondage to Satan. And then thirdly, I mean, fourthly, look there, you're carrying out... The passions of the flesh and the desires of the body and the mind. Okay, and then number five, you are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, let me ask you a question. Why did Paul say by nature you're a child of wrath? Why did he use the term nature? Let me ask it a different way. Are you held accountable for sins that you commit and incur God's wrath because of the sins you commit? Yes, but why do you commit those sins? Because it's your nature to do so like the rest of mankind. So Romans 5.12, taking us all the way back to Genesis 3, is teaching that not only original sin came into the world through Adam, but original guilt. And like I said, You don't have to necessarily hold to original guilt, but original sin is a cardinal truth of the faith. Now, let's keep going through Romans chapter 5. Let's look at verse 16. Again, Paul is comparing and contrasting the one man Adam, the one man Jesus, and what Adam did that all of us were credited with and what Jesus did. Okay, so look at verse 16. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification so Paul is saying that Adam's sin what did, so let me just ask you guys what did Adam's sin bring? read your Bibles there what did Adam's sin bring? the judgment of one trespass brought what? Condemnation. Let me hear you say, I heard one. What's condemnation? Guilt. Okay. Adam's sin brought guilt. Okay, what did Jesus' death on the cross bring? Justification. We'll talk about that way on down the road when we get to that doctrine. But justification is basically like what I talked about a little bit on Sunday being declared righteous in God's sight, through Christ's righteousness being credited to you. So basically what Paul is saying here in this passage of Scripture in verse 16 is that he doesn't say humans are condemned because of our sin, but we enter the world already condemned because of Adam's sin. Okay, verse 17. What does verse 17 say? For if because of one man's trespass, okay, who's the one man that did the trespass? Adam. What happened? Death reigned through that one man much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Jesus again all humans are born guilty helpless sinful as a condition yet only those who receive the free gift of grace will be saved okay verse 18 Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. So again, Paul just keeps compounding the difference between Adam and Jesus, that Jesus' death on the cross brings justification in life. So here's the question you've got to ask. Remember earlier I said every single person is born in Adam. Every single person is born in Adam. You're not automatically born in Christ. The question is, how do you go from being in Adam to being in Christ? Can you somehow take yourself out of being in Adam and make yourself in Christ in your own power? Can you wake up one day and say, I don't want to be a sinner. I don't want to be corrupt. I'm just going to kind of clean myself up, and I'll put myself in Christ. No. It's only through personal faith in Jesus do you go from being in Adam to being in Christ. Through Now, verse 19, Paul's going to kind of bring it all to a close here. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Paul uses a lot of different words here for sin. Here he's calling it disobedience. In verse 15, he called it trespass. In verse 16, it's called sin. In verse 17 and 18, it's called trespass. Now he's calling disobedience. L- let's just think about the ugly truth of, of, this, of what Adam did and what, what happened to us as a result of that, okay? So sin is a falling short of God's glory. Sin is exchanging God's glory for idols. Sin is exchanging the truth of God for a lie. Sin is trespassing against God's direct command that Adam did in the garden. Sin is acting in corrupt and twisted ways and going your own way. So there was one act. Paul keeps coming back to this one act. What was the one act that Adam did? The one trespass, the one act. He ate from the tree. That was the one act of disobedience. Okay, what was the one act of Jesus that Jesus did? Well, it was his death on the cross, being obedient to the Father. So, in the case of Adam, who sinned? We were credited with his guilt. Not only that made us born with a sin nature, but also guilty. So I want you to think about the crediting terms here. Imputation, crediting, reckoning, bank account terms. You are born with a negative gazillion bank account balance in your spiritual bank account when you're born. You, you cannot make that up. So you're born with a negative gazillion balance in your bank account when you're born. Okay, so picture your life as a bank account. Okay, so here's your life as a bank account, and here's Jesus over here. Your life as a bank account, you have a negative gazillion balance in your spiritual bank account. When God the Father looks down upon your life, what does he see? Tremendous debt. Okay, the only way to get that debt out of your account is to have somebody take it out. So by faith, when you trust in Jesus, that debt is credited or debited or transferred or reckoned or imputed, whatever word you want to use, it's taken out of that account, your account, and it's credited to Christ. So that's one direction. So what's going out of your account, your spiritual bank account? <coughs> Excuse me, your negative balance of sins going out. So what does that leave you at? Zero. Okay, is that good? <laughs> You're like, okay, I'm out of debt, but I don't have any positive balance. Okay, so you're at zero now. Can you do anything good to get yourself a positive balance? No. So it goes a diff- It goes the opposite direction. Your sin goes out of your account, but guess what? The perfect righteousness of Christ, his perfect record, his perfect righteousness is credited to your account by faith. So now your account is the righteousness of Christ. And so when God the Father, the judge of the universe, looks down upon your life, he can now make a pronouncement not guilty because of what Christ has done. So in the case of Jesus, we were credited with his righteousness as a free gift so that God can declare us not guilty. Now, for the past two weeks, we've been talking about sin and sin and sin and Adam and Eve's fall. And you're probably thinking, Pastor Sean is so depressing. When are we ever gonna get to some good news? Well, we're at the good news point. Okay, so the question then becomes, what's going to happen with Adam and Eve? Is God going to obliterate them off the map? Is God just going to end the human race? So go back to Genesis chapter 3. And what I want us to look at, so we talked first of all about the sentence. We talked about the curse. Satan was cursed. The woman was, she had some things going on with childbirth and the man And then we talked about the implications, they were banished from the garden, the implications that it has for us that Paul talks about in Romans 5. But let's go back to Genesis 3, and let's see the gospel of hope. Okay, so I told you we'd come back to Genesis 3.15, which, okay, so in my opinion, Genesis 3.15 is probably the most, at least one of the top three or four most important verses in the Old Testament. Okay, so let's read it together. Genesis 3.15. This is God speaking, and who is he speaking to? He's speaking to the servant. I will put enmity. Now, some of your translations may not have enmity. It may have strife or warfare. I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In in Latin, this is called the Proto-Evangelion, which means the first announcement of the gospel in the Bible. This is the very first time God is announcing the gospel. And think about it, it's it's in the third chapter of the Bible, right after cosmic treason when Adam and Eve sinned. So what I want us to do is I want us to see six Promises of hope in the gospel that we see from this one passage of scripture. Okay, we're going to mine this scripture for all of its depths tonight, okay? Six things. So here's number one God's, first, salvation will come from God's free and sovereign mercy. Notice the very first words out of God's mouth. What does he say? I will. I will put enmity. We've talked about this all the way from the very beginning. Who's in charge here? Does God stop and ask Adam and Eve, hey, um, would you guys like to come up with a plan of salvation to fix this? How how are you going to get yourself out of this? He doesn't give them another covenant and say, hey, you need to try harder next time. You blew it, so let's start over again, and I'll give you another tree and try, try it again. No, basically, God acts in sovereign mercy unilaterally and says, I'm going to do this. The surprising thing is sometimes this is foreign to our modern ears. Think about it this way. God is not compelled to show mercy or under any constraint to give it. Let me just ask you a very simple question. After Adam and Eve sinned, could God have stopped and killed them there and said, we're done? Was he under any obligation to continue his love and grace towards them? No. So God is choosing in his sovereign grace to say, I'm going to deal with your sin in the way that I'm going to deal with your sin. Let me just say this, and you've you've heard me say this before, grace ceases to be grace if it's something God is obligated to give. If God is obligated to give it, what is that? That's something you deserve or you earn. And you guys all know this passage of Scripture. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. I mean, Ephesians 2, 5, and 4. I, I, I kind of fooled myself there. I thought I had 2, 8, and 9. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. So God is in charge. He's sovereignly saying, I'm going to fix the problem that you got yourself into, Adam and Eve. I will put enmity. Now, here's the second thing we see, and you have to read very carefully into this text. Salvation will come from a redeemer who is a man, and I capitalized the word man. Notice what it says there. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, he, singular he, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's a he there. So salvation will come from the seed of a woman. It's not going to be an animal. It's not going to be an angel. It's going to be a human. It's going to be a man. But it's not just going to be any man. It's going to be one who is fully God, absolutely God, truly God, and fully and absolutely and truly man. Now what does Paul have to say about this? Galatians 4, 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Okay, I want you to think about this. The birth of Christ is announced in Genesis 3.15. There's going to be an offspring of a woman that's going to come, and he is going to deal with Satan, this offspring. And Paul says in the fullness of time, Jesus came born of a woman. 2 Timothy 2.8, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel, he would literally come from the lineage of David, fully man, fully God. Okay? So God's sovereignly going to do this saving, the promise of it. It's going to come through a man, he. And then thirdly, salvation will come from a substitutionary sacrifice. What's this whole bruising of the head? Satan will bruise the heel of Jesus, and then Jesus is going to crush his head. Why the heel? It's kind of a veiled reference, right? You think about a snake bite on the heel. This is really a reference to the death on the cross. This, this coming Savior who's from the offspring of a woman would experience a painful, excruciating death. You shall bruise his heel. But I want you to see some other passage here, not just Genesis 3.15, but we've got to take one other passage in context here to get the full picture. Look at verse 21. You can just kind of just jump over this. I mean, that's a kind of a cool thing. God made garments of of skin for them remember we said last week they made fig leaves that was kind of man-made religion them them trying to fashion for themselves something to cover up their shame and that wasn't going to work because they were hiding from God look at verse 21 the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them now this is not explicit in the text but let's just ask an obvious question where did the skins from the animal come from You have to infer that God killed an animal. Who deserved to die? Adam and Eve. So we have a very picture here at the beginning of a substitutionary atonement. Instead of Adam and Eve dying for their sin, God kills an animal instead as a substitute and then clothes them with that animal skin. It's a picture of substitutionary atonement that God would kill a substitute by blood instead of the ones that deserve to die and cover them in grace. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us for it is written cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. now, Think about the whole idea that Jesus would die on the cross. He's going to be bruised. But that's not going to be the end. Doesn't say it says you'll bruise his, his heel. It'll be a wound. It'll be a painful wound. It will be a death. But one thing you also see in this passage of Scripture. His salvation will come by a victorious resurrection. Because what does it say there? You shall bruise his head. Or Jesus, he shall bruise your head. The head versus the heel. Yes, Satan's going to come and it's going to be a sacrificial substitutionary atonement where Jesus is going to die a cruel death, but that's not the end. He's going to crush the head of Satan. He's going to win the victory. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 57. Oh, I'm sorry, I I passed up one. Um, Romans 16, 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is with you. Now we get to 1 Corinthians 15, 55-57. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now you may be thinking, okay, did Jesus definitively kill the devil when he died on the cross? Yes, in a sense that he disarmed Satan. I want you to think about it this way. You guys know a little bit about World War II? Okay, so... What D-Day. What was D-Day? Come on, World War II buffs. D-Day was the day when all of the Allied forces stormed the Normandy coast, they pushed back Hitler, and for all intents and purposes, D-Day was pretty much the end of pretty much the end of World War II. Hitler knew he was done. OK? He, he knew he was sunk. But that wasn't the official end of World War II, was it? No, you had to wait a whole other year. So between D-Day and between VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, what was the battle? The Battle of the Bulge. The Battle of the Bulge was the most bloody of all the battles in World War II. And why was it the most bloody of all the battles? Because Hitler knew he had lost. And like a ravaged madman, he wants to get as much carnal or collateral damage as he could because he knew he was going out. So it was one last effort to try to win the war knowing that he had lost it. Okay, so I want you to think about the cross is D-Day. Jesus defeated Satan on the cross. That didn't mean Satan went away. It means that Satan knows the end. What's the end for Satan? What's V-E-Day for Satan when he gets thrown into the lake of fire? So between that day, when Jesus comes back and the cross, Satan, like Hitler, is going to ramp up the attacks on the church because he knows the end of the story. He knows he's beat. So yes, in a sense, Satan has been defeated by the cross. He can't take away our salvation. He can't, um, you know, he can't do things that God doesn't sovereignly allow him to do. But definitively, Satan was crushed on the cross, but ultimately, he will be defeated on that final day when he's thrown into the lake of fire. And we see that in Revelation 20, verse 10. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will, torment, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Okay. So you see that there's going to be sovereign grace. God's gonna do it. It's gonna come from a man born of a woman there's going to be a sacrificial substitutionary death for sinners there's going to be a glorious resurrection the crushing of satan but then there's a fifth thing that we see and this goes back to that whole issue of of justification or righteousness so fifthly salvation will come from external righteousness credited to sinners an external righteousness Now, where do you see that in verse 21? When God clothes them with animal skins, it's a picture. Did Adam and Eve clothe themselves? They are clothed with a substitute. They're clothed by grace. God God deals with their shame. God deals with their nakedness. God deals with their sin by giving them something they didn't deserve from outside of themselves and clothing them with it. And so this is what salvation is, is that God gives us a righteousness from outside of ourselves by grace to cover our sins. Because we can't take away our own guilt. Adam and Eve, God didn't say, Adam and Eve, you deal with it, take away your own guilt. Go figure out how to kill an animal and then come and clothe yourselves. God did it all, sovereignly. And so when you think about that picture, just as God killed an animal as a substitute and covered their nakedness with clothes that, he did, that they did not make. God killed his only son as a substitute and covers our spiritual nakedness, guilt, and shame with the precious blood of Christ that comes from outside of ourselves as a free gift. Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Through him, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. This is what I was talking about earlier with that bank account illustration. You're clothed or you're credited or you're you're reckoned with the righteousness of Christ outside of yourself to come and clothe you and give you the righteousness of Christ. So, God sovereignly does it in his grace. He wasn't obligated to do it. Salvation's gonna come from a man a redeemer, the seed of a woman, Jesus. There's going to be a painful substitutionary death, but there's going to be a resurrection and victory over Satan, and there's going to be a righteousness that we're going to be clothed with outside of ourselves by grace. But there's one thing, and this may be the one that we don't like too much, there's one last truth. Salvation will involve a perpetual conflict between God's people and Satan. Notice what God says. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Does God say how long that enmity is? How long that warfare is? He doesn't tell us right here, but we know from the rest of the Bible that his attacks are going to be upon God's people until he's thrown in the lake of fire. He's going to be like the Hitler illustration. He's going to try to devour and attack. And so it means this. If you are going to live a life of obedience to Christ, you and I should expect attacks from the enemy. If we are going to be a church that stands upon God's truth, we should expect attacks from the enemy. Let me give you a quote from Charles Spurgeon, okay? You didn't think you'd you'd get away tonight without a Spurgeon quote, so here we go. I'm gonna have to put my glasses on for this. He says this, expect to be assailed, and assailed means assaulted. If you have fallen into trouble through being a Christian, be encouraged by it. Do not regret or fear it, But rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for there is still enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And if you did not experience any of it, you might begin to fear that you were on the wrong side. You must not think the devil cares much about you. The battle is against Christ in you. I wish I would have put that up on the screen. Let me read that again. What did Spurgeon say? Expect to be assailed. If you've fallen into trouble through being a Christian, be encouraged by it. Do not regret or fear it, but rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for there's still enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And if you did not experience any of it, you might begin to fear that you were on the wrong side. You must not think the devil cares much about you. The battle is against Christ in ultimately Christ hates Satan and he knows he can't fight Jesus. Can Satan fight Jesus? Maybe he thinks he can. He can try. But who's the next best target? God's people. He can't fight God. He's going to fight God's people. The Christ in us because he knows he can't get to Christ. So, how do you deal with the onslaughts of the enemy? How do you, how do you deal with the persecution, the things that come at you, the, the temptations? I could stand up here and say, hey, just be a better Christian and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and do a better job. But the only way you're going to fight the enemy is by having a glorious view of who Jesus is. And that means always putting before yourself the gospel. Saturating yourself in the gospel, sitting under the gospel, listening to the gospel, being under the preaching of the gospel. Moralism doesn't help you in any way become a better, you get better at fighting the temptation of the devil. It comes through looking to Jesus. I think Robert Murray McShane said this: for every, for every look at yourself, take ten looks at Jesus. <laughs> okay, because we're tempted to look at ourselves, we look at the enemy, we look at all these things. Instead of looking at ourselves and the enemy and everything's going on, take ten looks at Jesus. And because John says in 1 John three eight, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And where was it prophesied? right here in genesis three fifteen, which again everything hinges so from genesis we're not doing it we're not going through genesis on wednesday nights I, I wish we were we're going more through systematic theology but the big question in the book of genesis is this what when's this seed going to come from a woman and who's going to be the ultimate the ultimate savior And that you see that played out all the way through the Bible. And it's prophesied right here that there's one day going to come a man, a redeemer, a savior from the seed of a woman born at just the right time, fully God, fully man, who's going to live a perfect life, who's going to die on the cross in our place, who's going to rise again, who's going to be victorious over Satan, who's going to come back in power and glory. Until that day, we're always going to be embattled in a warfare to the very end. But Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil and so our ultimate goal is to keep our eyes fixed on him as our great God and King.